if it's what they need and it's appropriate at the time, just be really good at it and understand why you're doing it and have a range of other ways of interacting with players. And it's the same for coaching and I think it's it's the same with, with ways of thinking and ways of playing. And again, it's, I feel very privileged to have, to have had these opportunities. You know, very often I seem to rub shoulders with people before they were famous. Kira McKenna was one of our coaches at Loughborough and I have to say I'm just not surprised I'm just not surprised with the, su- the success he had I've never met any I've never met anyone like him in terms of being so intense and so focused M- my feeling is that while governing bodies are responsible for coach education we're going to go nowhere with it because of the very things that we're talking about discussion welcome to the podcast my first question like i do with every guest is get them to reflect back at the beginning of their journey how did coaching become a passion for you at a young age wow good morning uh thanks for having me on that's a that's a really good question to get us up and running um i think it was entirely accidental i don't think i was in particularly and passion by at a young age. My experience of coaching was in the receiving coaching was in the late seventies and early eighties, and coaching looked and felt very different then. And I don't think I really had the awareness. You know, you just kind of turned up, did some training, got told what to do, and then went home. Really, so I don't think as a player I was particularly that aware of it necessarily. Um, but I think that the, the big, the big turning point for me. Um, because I I did my I've done my life and career the whole all the way completely the wrong way round. So I left school as soon as I could. Um, joined the military, came out of the military, was still reasonably good at sport, and was involved in kind of non-league level sport. Um, also got lots of injuries, so I was battling with injuries, trying to play, trying to work, and we turned up to training uh, a non-league club one evening and uh, it was a very much a manager coach setup so the manager was a manager and the coach did the coaching and he was player coach so he was involved but he couldn't make training and the manager came into the you know came into the dressing room and basically said oh um this lad's not coming tonight he can't make it he's got issues at work does anyone fancy doing it and there was everyone's looking at the floor <laughs> looking at the ceiling <laughs> and i went yeah okay I'll, I'll give it a go. So I, I actually took training and strangely enjoyed it and got positive feedback. I mean, I was, you know, like many new and inexper- inexperienced coaching, it wasn't coaching. It was definitely a training session. And I was just doing stuff that, that, that had been done to me, really, and tried to get engagement. And from that moment, it was like, okay, I actually, I'm struggling playing. I can't really get it. I couldn't get into the team. I was in, getting a lot of injuries, had a lot of back problems. And it's like, well, actually, this coaching thing could be something I could get interested in. And having done my life the wrong way around, I was working. I was working in, in five hence, would you believe, at the time. I was pretty unhappy with that too. And it was, I was 20, in my 20s, I shall say. And it's like, okay, I need to need to make some decisions here. And I actually went back to university in my 20s, late 20s, to study sports science, thinking, you know, I'm, I'm really into my sport. I enjoy tra- I enjoy being a coach, learning to be a coach, working with players. So, you know, why not try and do that for a job? 
rather than bounce from pointless corporate job to pointless corporate job. So um, I went, went back to university, actually studied sports science. But when I went back to university, I was I actually thought I'd end up in a strength and conditioning place. So it was the physical training stuff that really interested me. Physical performance was what interested me to start with. And then, you know, got more got more into coaching with the university team, did coaching modules at university and, and it's that that really kinda all the stars were aligning here. So I was getting opportunities to coach. I was studying coaching and it's like, okay, this is where this is where I wanna this is where I wanna be really, in some form or other. I wanna do this for a job. So that's kinda and this is, you know, thirty years or so. <laughs> <laughs> alarmingly showing my age, very old person so yeah this is this is how it all started basically in the kind of late 80s early 90s for me was there anyone that inspired you on that journey to become a coach was there any moment you mentioned obviously the experiences at a grassroots level and kind of that having that exposure they the one stand out in that respect yeah um i would i I, w- I would say it was once I got exposed to um, formal coach education. So I had someone, I, d- I did my, pre- it was a, called a prelim back then in football before we had the UEFA qualifications. And the coach educator at the time kind of basically, I, I you know, I failed my prelim the first time. I don't mind saying it. And I struggled to coach in the game. You know, I could, the technical stuff was fine, but, the, you know, reading and understanding the game and, intervening in a meaningful way for the players was really challenging for me. I found it very difficult and actually failed that course the first time. But I redid it and um, redid the assessment. And, uh, well, I got a, lot, a little bit more experience. And then I went back and redid it and and absolutely sailed through it. So it was no problem. So it was very inexperienced thing. But I think, you know, the tutor on that course, who was very encouraging and said, you know, actually, if you work at this, you could be quite good at it, which was very, very positive. But also, you know, through opportunities at university, so traveling to the US, seeing different coaches working, getting involved with research and being exposed to coaches was was just very, very good. You know, so, you know, we spent time at Crew and Steve Holland was at Crew, who was part of the England setup. And obviously Dario was the was the first team manager there and the way that they were doing coaching was, you know, Back in it was back in the nineties was just like so different, and the way that they were working with players, it's like wow, this is this is really really this is very good. Um, I was lucky enough to spend some time with um, Brendan Rogers. I actually did my B and A license with Brendan Rogers, um, who even then was you know was very you know before before he was famous and before he became the coach he is today, he was you know working part time in football, looking for his first full time role. But even then, you could just see the way these, you know, when then he started working at Reading and he watched working the youth team at Reading and how they were playing and how he was working with players. Um, been very fortunate enough to work with Paul Clement, who's another guy who's gone on to win Champions Leagues and those sorts of things. You know, who, who again has got a particular way of coaching, very organized, very detailed. So you just pick up these little bits from people that you come across. Um, and again, it's, I feel very privileged to have to have had these opportunities. You know, very often I seem to have rubbed shoulders with people before they were famous. So I've spent some time at Loughborough. Um, Kira McKenna was one of our coaches at Loughborough. So we ran the non-league team for three three years. I was involved with the non-league team. 
and each year we took a, a student on board as part of the coaching team. One of the years was Kieran McKenna, <laughs> and I have to say I'm just not surprised. I'm just not surprised with the, su- the success he had. I've never met any. I've never met anyone like him in terms of being so intense and so focused and so detailed. But want to work with the players, just an amazing young talent. And seeing you know seeing him now where he is, it's like yeah, that's just no just no surprise to me at all that he's been able to achieve what he's been able to achieve, really. You mentioned those different types of people, Clem, Paul Clement, uh, yeah. Brendan Rodgers, Kieran McKenna. Yeah. Yeah. What skills and traits yeah. do you think they hold to become successful? Is there anything that you picked up on? Um, well, they're all very different people. <laughs> you know, they're all very, you know, personality-wise, I don't think there's, you know, and, and the research tells us, you know, we went down the personality piece a while ago and kind of, you know, that's a cul-de-sac, right? There is there a personality. You know, they're all very different in terms of their outlook, in terms of personality. But I think, and again, in term, I think they're all very powerful at building relationships with players, but in very different ways. You know, so I would say that the players that have worked with those coaches, and even even my relationships with them were different. But there was a, you know, but there was a, there was a connection there. So definitely that kind of that relationship thing is important. Um, caring for individual players, I think, has been noticeable. You know, actually worried about the individual as, as part of a group. But I, I just come back. All, all three of them, I would say, were, were just incredibly attention to detail, very detailed about us, about the opposition, about the way they wanted to play. You know, no stone unturned. They, everything was thought about, considered, practiced. So. I guess I guess that's an element of content knowledge, but also knowing what you kind of where you want to go and what you want to do. So having a bit having a vision for it. Now there's a clear way of how we want to play. I know how I want to get there. I know how that I want my players to work. So I think the relationship piece, done in different ways, but that kind of individual focus is important. But also that kind of having a having a vision for where you want to go with the group and the team. I think of some things that I would say that I've probably seen from those guys. We joked earlier and you, you mentioned your 30 years experience from that transition from finance in your 20s and obviously your your academic career now at Loughborough. How has coach education changed? How have you seen it developed over time? Is there anything that stands out in terms of those years? Well, yeah, I mean, it was, you know... It, Across the board, coach education has changed dramatically. Um, so I think when I first started out, there was very much a focus on what. So it's very knowledge driven, um, less a focus. So the uh, but the, the how to coach was there, but was very implicit. So certainly there was an you know there was a way of coaching that was very linear, unopposed, partial pressure full pressure game that, you know, there's a very linear process. It was about breaking things down. So the, so the, the how to coach was never really discussed, but it was very much modeled. And, um, and alternatives weren't really encouraged. <laughs> you know, you need to coach like this to pass basically. Um, so I think there's been over the years there's been more of a recognition on the how to coach so the pedagogy piece has definitely 
grown. Um, uh, people are, are more aware of different ways of delivering. So more of a games-based approach versus a skill drill approach or whatever it is. So I think though there's more of that for sure. Um, you know, I, I always thought, particularly in football, that the content knowledge was very, very strong and it just needed the how to coach to be stirred into it. Um, and we, we did a piece of research at Loughborough about 10 years ago and um, we sat through quite a few A licenses as part of that project. And I don't know whether it was my selective memory, it might have been, but I I felt that the kind of the sharpness around the technical stuff had probably gone a little bit, you know, that it wasn't as detailed about, you know, it wasn't as thoughtful about the game as it perhaps once was, but there was more, definitely more how to. So, you know, whether the balance is still right with the, with the, the knowledge of the game piece versus the how to coach piece, although it's now, now the football have broken it, broken up across you. So you've got youth awards and you've got the UEFA route, haven't you? And there's almost a, no, it's almost two streams to it, um, which which again is different. So, you know, and in my most recent job with um, with netball, you know, the, the coach education is, you know, it's kind of it's still this, it hasn't really moved. So I think there's a, you know, there's some governing bodies and some coach education have really thought about, you know, have been very well intentioned. And have thought about changing what they do to try and meet the needs of of, of learner coaches and have changed what they're doing. Some, you know, and there have been perhaps unintended consequences of that. You know, there's you take something out, to put, you have to put something else in, right? So you, there's always a choice around curriculum. Something in means something is not covered. So you know, whether whether that balance is right now, I don't know. That's open for debate. But you know, but and there are some governing bodies. There's some coach education that hasn't moved. It, it feels like the '90s still. Or so, um, you know, I think it it depends largely. Um, but there's definitely more of a focus around um, being learner centred or thinking about the needs of the athlete and uh, or the player and trying to align what we're doing to the the people who are standing in front of us, essentially. You said some sports haven't moved or developed since the 90s. I'm intrigued on why that might be apparent. Is that down to maybe lack of funding, leadership there? Can you justify why that might be a problem? Yeah, I, 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 well, I, I mean, some... I mean, I, I can remember sitting, you know, a bit being working at a Centre of Excellence slash Academy and, and have, us having support days delivered by the governing body. It wasn't delivered by the... So the Premier League in football have taken... A big big step in delivering coach development, but when a when again I'm old enough to remember when we went from centres of excellence to academies, the FA still delivered a lot of the support and the CPD for this. And I can remember the someone from the FA standing up on doing a presentation and basically getting asked questions, and 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 quite arrogantly really saying, "Well, we're the governing body; we know." you know you can't tell us about the game we understand everything about the game because they had at that time i would say quite an insular view you know it was they you you draw from the same well you get the same water right so you could just constantly have this echo chamber and i think some sports you know it it is certainly a kind of an evolution thing they're in different stages of their evolution and yes i think funding is an is a you know is an important part of that 
I think who you employ, if you constantly, if you'd never bring anybody from outside of your sport in, you know, you, you do become the sport that time forgot in some respects, you know, and you just keep doing what you're doing and thinking that's okay without really any concept of what's happening in the wider, wider coach development space or the wider education space. So I think there's a kind of a parochialism um, meshed with the kind of where people are on in terms of their evolution, stirring some funding issues and what they're able to do. Um, you know, some sports, the coach development piece is an income generator and it has to be an income generator for them. So that really shapes what, they, what they're able to do, what things cost how much time they can spend on different things, you know, and that's a, a, an incredibly influential thing. So, and that kind of agenda doesn't talk to change particularly well. Now, if you, you know, you, it, as soon as you start threatening an income stream, <laughs> there's caution. People go, well, hang on a minute. If we, if we change this, suddenly we won't get this amount of money anymore that we need as part of our income generation. So, you know, I have huge sympathy. You know, it's hugely challenging, isn't it? The result is you're stuck. You have this inertia where you don't really change stuff. You tickle it around the edges, but you don't really make any meaningful change. And and the thing just, you know, year after year after year is essentially the same. What are your views on the current state of sport? So if we take football, for example, we have English coaches trying to get opportunities, um, ex-players coming into the game and, and getting opportunities and that kind of, clash that uh, epitomizes some of the things that are happening within the modern game what are your views on on it over yeah i'm just intrigued to think about the current state of play um yeah i mean coaching isn't playing right right so i'm i'm particularly uncomfortable with i mean i did it and i you know but it was low risk and low status i literally you know went from coach to player overnight and or player to coach overnight with having no experience and it's really not the way to do it <laughs> you need to you need to you know you know and and my colleague Darren Watts has written quite extensively about you know we trap we trap people over a decade and 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 um or he trapped people over a decade and even a, 10 years later people are saying you know that apprenticeship that learning how to coach piece where at whatever level was really important for me to be to where I am today as a coach. So, you know, I, uh, coaching isn't playing. People need to learn the trade. They need to be able to um, evolve and grow as coaches. And then after that, the entry is the entry. I, I guess at the moment we, you know, what are the markers of expertise? What are the criteria for getting a job? And I think that's something that, Perhaps we could discuss. You know, it's you know, it's, it's not a role. It's a role not like any other, really. Where we're, we're we run fast and loose with the require the requirements for the role, basically. Yeah. Again, the reason why I ask that is obviously, uh, Chris, my team's Birmingham, and they've just appointed Wayne Rooney, and we had a successor coach and John Hughes. <laughs> yeah. That debate. Yes, you did. That debate is is coming to the to the equation in terms of. You know, how do we define good leaders and good coaches? It down to ex-playing careers and the well, transitions. You know, well, yeah. Well, I guess that just shows how how corrupt isn't the right word, is it? How 
bankrupt the sport is in some respects. You know, I'm, I, you know, I thought John Eustace did a decent job at QPR with, uh, you know, and you know where they are and what they've done since he left has just demonstrates how well he did. And I've watched Birmingham a, a few times under him and thought again with the resources and everything. It's like I think he, you know, doing a good job, but you know, he's not a you know, the, the the new owners come in, don't they, and want a, you know, a marquee coach, you know, a name. And, you know, I, I'm, you know, I've not seen Wayne Rooney coach, so I can't comment on him as a manager or a coach, so I wouldn't know. But it, if I was John Eustace, I'd be pretty mm. unhappy <laughs> with it. You know, what have you done wrong, really? I'd, you know, give the guy a chance. But you know, we know that football isn't like that, right? These people want a name and a brand. So, you know, and that's 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 the game, right? The game stinks in that respect. What are your current thoughts on coach education then from maybe a grassroots perspective? There might be people listening or watching this that want to maybe develop themselves within that area and they don't necessarily see themselves as maybe that elite coach. There might be parents or volunteers that are helping win certain grassroots clubs what do you think is important within that area and is there anything that you've researched that really epitomizes strengths within developing people in that respect yeah of course well i just think that um thinking about how you're coaching is really important so even even you know we encourage everybody to do this even um getting a little you know using your device and filming your sessions and just watching back what you're doing versus what you're trying to achieve you know how you what practices are you doing how are you interacting with your players what does that look like are you happy with what you see in relation to what you're trying to achieve so a level of kind of self-awareness and and actually thinking about why you're doing what you're doing is really important you know I think back to my days I just did stuff because I'd seen somebody else do it or I I thought that was the way to do things and never really engaged any thought process like, well, why am I actually doing like that, doing this? And then once you get that kind of curiosity, you can then start exploring different ways. And, you know, for all its faults, the governing body does have mountains of resources and, you know, stuff you can go and look at and think about in terms of what to coach and how to coach. So I think that self-awareness along with that curiosity to try and improve and develop is really important for grassroots coaches, really. You know, it's important that we have a we have a qualified and kind of licensed workforce, even if they are volunteers. So, the the coaching awards are important for that. But you know, that's not really how you get better at coaching. Really, you get better at coaching by practicing it and getting some feedback from it. So, I would find, again, if I were a grassroots coach now, I would either, you know, find somebody I respected or somebody through. The governing body say come and have a look at what i'm doing give me some give me some feedback on it um that that's essentially that's essentially how you get better at coaching you know the awards are important but they're incredibly um low impact compared to you know the amount of time you spend coaching you know a weekend on an award will give you some information is for me it's just kind of the front porch or the front door is it, it it's important and it sets some standards and it gets you to a level but really, practicing and getting feedback on your coaching is how you're going to get better. Do you reckon there has to be some modification in that process? Because you said potentially national governing bodies have faults. Is there anything that 
we can share on what those roles might look like. <laughs> Go on, how do you mean? <laughs> in terms of maybe developing individuals, because you said that the, the course is at the porch and it's a money maker, and then you, you, you're into the world, you know? Well, for some, for, I mean, no, okay, yeah, yeah. So let, let, let's get this. So for some, some governing bodies, the courses are really important financially. For others, the bigger governing bodies that got 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 money, they're not. They cover their costs and they make some money from them. So it's not that's not the prime motivator. So let's let's not throw them all in, tar them all with the same brush. And those where it is an income stream, it's usually because they have no other choice. Really, they you know they they're not they've not got a massive you know their sport isn't on TV. It's not a, you know they need to help. They need to generate income. So I I totally understand that. So let's kind of separate those those guys out i guess for me you know again recent when i do a review of these sorts of things whether it's in sport or other things i ask the question and we measure what are people spending their time doing and i've done this with um i've done this in football i've done this in a range of sports i've done that this in a range of other industries you know and if 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 you want to get somebody better at coaching they need to practice coaching but if you're spending 10%, 9%, 5%, 1% of your time on an award practicing coaching, you're probably not going to get better at it. So you're going to have lots of awareness raising about different issues and different things and lots of interesting stuff. But unless you spend your time practicing coaching, you're probably not going to get better at it. And I don't, you know, I could throw that mud at pretty much all of the governing bodies, if I'm honest. That's That probably sticks to the ball. I mean... It, 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 you know, the percentage of time you spend actually practicing coaching can be in single figures on a coaching award. Yeah. So, what are you getting better at? What are you getting better at if you're not practicing it and having someone give you some feedback, essentially, to help you with that? So that you know, and then you know, then we've got, then we've got. Well, I need to put twenty thousand learners through <laughs> a year. It's like okay. Yeah. You know, do you know what I mean? So you've got scale. You know, there's all there's lots of moving parts here, and I think one of the you know I was I was involved in the early noughties with the UKCC, and it was a missed opportunity really to really reshape the landscape. You know that it was a high tide watermark of being able to influence what we do with coaching, but basically, it was always along the lines of we've got a weekend, or we've got two weekends, and that's it. So whatever you do, we're not we're changing, but we're not really changing. <laughs> so the structure and format of coach education has looked the same since I started doing it thirty years ago. It's essentially a couple of weekends or a few days. It's not, you know, it's not little and often. It's not. To be fair, some sport, you know, for example, rugby union have taken a very brave and tennis to a certain degree have taken a little and often approach. So you you do something every week or every other week for a, for an hour or so, either yourself or with a with a developer or do some learning, and I think that's incredibly brave to break out of this. We come for a weekend, two weekends, do your assessment, that's it, one and done. You know, little and often get some feedback, get some practice. So I think there you know there may be others, but from my knowledge, you know, one of the few that are doing it is a rugby union. They've been very brave and said, look, this weekend block thing. We need to see people more often. We need to have a actually have a relationship with our coaches, and we need to support them as they grow. You know, they need to try stuff, 
come back to us, we give them feedback and they try some more stuff on, you know, so for example, that middle qualification, that kind of level two equivalent takes a year now, but it's little and often over the course of the year, which makes a lot more sense to me, makes a lot more sense to me. Is there no way of developing a community of practice in that respect where football can learn off rugby and sharing ideas? Does that work or... Well, so in our yeah. to the national government, who's intrigued on great question. Great question. I don't know the answer. It would make a world of sense, wouldn't it? I mean, I, 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 I you know, uh, I'll, I'll be controversial here. The, uh, the, co controversially, I think that while governing, so if you think of any other industry or trade, right? So a plumber, electrician, a lawyer, an engineer, a surgeon. The employer and deployer of those people don't train them. So if I'm going to be an electrician, I go to the college, I do my course, and then I get a job as an electrician. I might have an apprenticeship, but the employer, I'd still go to college. So the tr person training me isn't necessarily the person who employs me. So I, I, I struggle to think of any other trade or professional industry where basically you know, the employer deploys you know, maybe the military. Arguably, you know, the people that do that, but that's a, but there's a very distinct period of training there. But m my feeling is that while governing bodies are responsible for coach education, we're going to go nowhere with it because of the very things that we're talking about. You know, I think there's a, you know, I think there's an argument for a, you know, like a, whether it's an apprenticeship or a course where you learn to be a coach, and then you go to your sport, and then you kind of. Because at the moment it's so there's it's just all over the place, isn't it? It's incredibly you know even within governing bodies. Again, part of our work is looking at the fidelity of courses. So if I do a course in Nottingham and then I'm doing a course in Newcastle, what does it look like? Do I get the same experience as a as a, a learner? And even within you know within a governing body, you'll get a completely different experience. So the fidelity of a course that's supposed to be the same is very low. So there's no real kind of, you know, if you get a really good coach developer or a good coach educator on a, and a good cohort, you'll have a really amazing experience. But if you don't, you probably won't. And that really is down to chance very often. You know, what, what other industry does that? <laughs> I mean, what other industry does that? I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. So I'd like to say, you know, you know, as long as while governing bodies are, co are developing coaches, coaching isn't going to go anywhere, really, would be my feeling. So controversially, maybe. One thing that I wanted to pick up on was the develop development of sport in general. And if we take football, for example, I always find when there's a major competition, World Cup, European Championships, if there's a, a national team that's very successful. There's this sense of moral panic in England where we have to copy, jump on the bad wagon, we've got to copy what the French do or what the Netherlands do. What are your thoughts on that in terms of learning from other countries and apply it within the UK? Obviously, culturally, that could be a challenge and all those other facets that are um, within that. What are your thoughts on, on that and, and try and develop coaching practice or even policy around other nations? I think... You know, there, there's a significant, you know, there's some really good up and coming researchers. I don't, they're not all young necessarily, but they're up and coming and, 
a body of work that talks about there's no cut and paste. And they're absolutely right. There is no cut and paste. I mean, my, you know, when I, when I was younger and growing and was just a sponge for this stuff, it was Brazil and Holland were the two countries. So all of my coaching, the video, see how old I am, coaching videos and coaching books are either from perhaps stuff from Brazil or stuff from Holland. They were the two countries, right? And then we've had Germany and Spain. And then we went through France, didn't we? With the, them winning the World Cup. And then we've had Spain and, and the influence of the Spanish coaches. So of course, can we learn stuff from other cultures and the way other countries do things? Yes. Can we just pick them up, cut, copy and paste them onto us? No, of course we can't because it's different. You know, we have a different tradition, different cultures, different ways of thinking about things. Are there things that we can learn and take? Yes, but they have to be adapted to suit us. And the, and the issue is, and we, you know, by the time you model yourself on whatever the thing is, that that country or sport have gone into, you know, they've gone somewhere else. Have <laughs> you know? So by the time you get to where you want to be, they've changed into something else anyway. So. Um, yeah, I, I just, I can see why people do it. And it's a very, people like sparkly, shiny things that they think are going to be great. I want to get, have some novelty, but there's definitely no cut and paste for sure. But, you know, but like with all things, you know, there's some balance here, isn't there? Somewhere in the middle is about right. So do we not look at anybody ever because we're brilliant? No. Do we, do we wholesale copy everything everybody else is doing? No. Somewhere in the middle is about right. We need to see what other people are doing. But we have to have to understand how we adapt it to how we want to play, how we want to be as a as a sporting nation, really. I suppose that adaptation enables complexes enables it to get complex. And again, right. the, the reason I say that is um I was speaking to a football manager this week and he mentions that all these new coaches are coming into the game and coming up with great ideas and great philosophies, but he's outlook was just make the game simple and that might align to what you said then in terms of this panic of we have to play like the Brazilians or the Germans but stick to what we're good at and try and add to that to develop I mean I'm intrigued on what you yeah about that. yeah of course yeah I mean we've had this with coach education right so if, if you think about coaching if we if we have a spectrum of coaching practice we've got a very directed um, structured, tell people what to do over here. And then at the other end, we've got a very much stand back, let them shape, create an environment and let them discover. And they are essentially two ends of a spectrum. For me, they're all available. We can do all of this stuff. So that, But what, what we've tried to do is we've literally tried to go from one end to the other <laughs> and wonder why it doesn't work. We're literally lurching from going from this type of coaching all the way to the complete opposite way of coaching, right? Rather than saying, well, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater here. What, how, you know, let's, let's look at what we're doing here and be really good at that. And let's maybe add a little bit and add a little bit of this and add a little, just gradually move to a place where we're comfortable. So I, I get this, it's very often extremes, isn't it? We go from one extreme to the other, lurch from one extreme to the other. It doesn't really work. And then you're like, well, you know, and I can, again, I can remember, you know, it's, you know, I, I, I grew up with the whole stop, stand still, tell, give the player some information. I think if you do that now, 
you know, lightning bolts come down on you, don't they? And you get blown up and so you can't tell players what to do. It's like, well, of course you can tell players what to do. If it's what they need and it's appropriate at the time, just be really good at it and understand why you're doing it and have a range of other ways of interacting with players. You know, it's like, you know, we all have a favorite meal, but we wouldn't eat at every single meal, right? We'd have, we want to have a range of things available to us. And it's the same for coaching. And I think it's it's the same with the with, with ways of thinking and ways of playing. You know, we, ch- we try and lurch from one thing to another. Now, I can remember working with a, uh, a non-league, an ex-player who was a non-league manager and was struggling. And we kept, we went in and tried to support him. And he was lit, he literally was going, he was like throw tea, shouting, screaming, like completely that to nothing, nothing, you know, being, and the players are like, what's going on? Don't know how to deal with you now. You now the players were like, you know, and the problem was this kind of, un- he create he was creating uncertainty in the, with the group. Like we don't know who you are anymore. So it's like who, and it was almost just be more yourself and maybe just tweak it a little bit rather than go from, literally Jekyll to Hyde, <laughs> you know, it, it, it was all well-intentioned. The guy was trying to do what he thought was the right thing and trying to be a better coach and a better manager, but that it totally freaked the players out. It's like, who is this guy? We don't, because like it's almost there was a loss of trust there. It's like, we don't really trust you now because it doesn't feel genuine anymore. So you just have to be careful with these things and think about how you, you know, there, there is a change management process, isn't it? You don't literally lurch from one thing from another. You kind of, I'm going to be like this and I'm going to just just try this and then add this and then add this and then try, gradually morph into something that where I want to be rather than go from this to this in one massive step. And everyone's like, whoa, what's going on here with that? Which is, which is problematic, which is massively problematic. It kind of leads me to my next question, really, around where do you see the future of coaching playing? I obviously during the course of this conversation, you mentioned that you know it's evolved. That authenticity, as, as you've alluded to, then is important. That stop standstill approach is obviously being washed out, and other methods are being used uh, effectively. Yeah. Where do you see coaching going within sport, and how education will evolve around that? Is there anything yeah. you come across that you recognise? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I think, you know, we have a. I think I think that coaching really is about meeting the needs of people who are in front of you, right? What do these people need? You know, physically, psychologically, technically, tactically, and we can't ignore the fact that the people standing in front of us are changing. You know what their their expectations are, what they want and need from us changes. So I think that by definition affects what coaching looks like. If we're if if we're committed to meeting the you know being player or athlete centered, which is meeting the needs of the player, and those folks are needing and asking different things of us, by definition the coaching needs to grow, evolve, and grow with that. Now that you know that's not that's not to say that the tail wags the dog. Of course it doesn't. But you know, there's how how do how do people present information? How do people present? You know, now so for example, you know, analysis now players are, are more interested in their own individual detail, so it which leads itself to more of a one to one kind of thing, player led piece. You know, and, and I 
So if you've got a group of players who are used to working with their own device, used to reviewing their own material and asking questions, what you know, taking control of their own learning and performance, saying, you know, I've noticed this, I need to get better at this, or when I play this opponent, he, you know, they do this to me or they do that to me. Can we work on that in training? So that's a, a much more interactive relationship, a lot more player-centered relationship. So if you've got that group, that type of player you're working with, and you sit them in a room, all twenty-something of them, and stick a PowerPoint on and talk at them, that's that's not going to work, is it? So I think you know how you do coaching will change according to the needs of the players and the people that are working in front of you. And that, you know, you know, society's changing. The people that players and athletes are changing and we need to evolve and grow with that. And that by definition will will mean what we need to do and understand as coaches will change. So I think it's, you know, there is that kind of bottom-up kind of force that's going to ask different questions of us as, as coaches. But, you know, as you're manager colleague friend says you know the game's still the game right so there 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 are some still things that we will need to do you know you know how you all of these change but the rules of the game stay the same the dimension of the pitch stay the same how you win a game essentially or lose the game essentially stays the same all of that is stuff and there are principles of play that essentially stay the same but for me, it's how you present that, how you deliver it, how you interact with players. All of that is the stuff that's shifting. You know, so there are kind of levels of sameness and levels of change. Um, and, and as I say, meeting the needs of a changing population, I think, is something that's going to impact, impact coaching a lot. Do you think that will impact maybe coaches at the highest level in terms of maybe that maybe that English representation of competing for the high-end trophies and having English managers maybe lead in other European club competitions or I mean or, or kind of world cups or I'm, I'm just intrigued on that because there's always that doubt around English managers tactically technically whether they can do it at the high end and I'd like to think that's changed with Eddie Howe and other managers. You mentioned Rogers as well. Um, just intrigued on what you think on that. Well, uh, you know, in my experience, again, this is just just my just my experience of working in working with different managers of different nationalities. You know, nationality doesn't guarantee you anything, for sure. And there are, there are some coaches who coach, like manager coaches who coach, and there are some that don't. So there are some who train their teams and don't really do that much. And, you know, you, 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 and there are some who are incredibly detailed and have preparation, have a way of playing, that way of playing, run through, through all that, you know, everything makes sense. And I, and I just think, you know, nationality really has nothing to do with it. You know, you're either coaching your team and preparing the team or you're not. And generally, you know, you, you can get away with, intensity and bluff and bluster for so you know that only gets you so far you know being in people's faces and being intense and you know sticking it in behind them and pressing and all that only gets you so far right it, it, it'll get you something but it only gets you so far you know there is a time when you actually have to communicate with players actually coach the players tell them what you want you know you, you can have some astonishing conversations with players about what 
what they do and don't get from their coach manager. It, it's astonishing, you know. It's astonishing at the level of coaching or not that happens at the highest level in the game. So I think ultimately, you know, that all shakes over time. That all shakes down, and the and the good people generally generally rise. You know, if, if given opportunity, they rise. So yeah, we've got some great young managers and great young coaches who I think are more than capable of delivering trophies and cups for us for sure. But you know. Do the do the owners give them the opportunity? We come back to that. John used this way really need business, don't we? <laughs> One thing that I wanted to yeah. ask you was uh, around kind of your experience, and you mentioned your thirty yeah. years and the people that you've worked with and the opportunities that yeah. you've had. What advice would you give to maybe someone that is starting off within their career of coaching that they want to maybe be inspired by some of the things that you've you've being exposed to is there anything that that stands out on your journey that can be shared yeah i'm i mean i'm horribly dated now so i'm talking about stuff that worked for me and i, I don't know if it works now people perhaps will try and see so i just asked people can i come and watch can i come and observe sometimes it was connected to research sometimes it was a friend of a friend it's like can i just come and watch training can i just observe basically immerse yourself in the environment and give yourself an opportunity to do stuff. And my, I mean, my very first break in, and I'm not sure you could do it now, and I'm not sure you, whether you'd be allowed to, but essentially, you know, I, I volunteered, you know, so like, you know, give me a chance and I'll, I'll volunteer and come and do a little bit for you. And if it's something, if there's an opportunity opens up, you know, it's almost a glory to, glorified internship. And I'm totally against not paying people. So again, I'm incredibly dated here. But I guess the general point is put yourself out there. Don't wait for the world to come to you, <laughs> essentially. You know, get get out and try and meet people. Try and network. Try and observe as much as you can. Get involved with as much as you can. Build your contacts up. It's That's, you know, that's the advice I'd give to folks. What that looks like in 2023 compared to what it looked like in 1993, I don't know. But the principle remains the same. Observe lots of coaching. Try and make contact with people. Get you know, reach out. Don't be don't be passive. Basically, expecting it all to come to you because it won't. One thing that just struck in my mind then when you were speaking about that was the opportunity, especially from an early career uh, student or an early career coach yeah. um, around employment and and finances that go with it. And you mentioned internships and volunteering. What are your generic thoughts on that? Because, uh, again, personally, from my perspective, I've been a victim of going to work for football clubs, cheap labour, so many hours, poor salaries. What are your thoughts on that in general? Yeah. I, I, I. So my feeling is that there are some clubs who take advantage of people who give you a tracksuit, maybe some if you're lucky, some expensive, maybe a meal and have you worked and there's no intention of anything other than using you for a year. So I think, I don't think that's just football. I think there are a range of sporting organizations and clubs that completely take advantage of people in that respect. So again, I guess it's, you know, from, from a, with my university hat on now and, you know, working at Loughborough, we're quite fortunate in that we probably won't engage with organizations that don't offer something. So either you need to pay them 
for a year or there needs to be something else. So I can think of a couple of opportunities with really good, uh, with progressive clubs where, you know, people have ended up getting jobs at the end of it. So there, there are, you know, you do a good job through your year, you work there and there is there, you know, because of the churn and turnover of staff in academies, there are job opportunities and these guys have been in the box seats to be able to get work at the end. So I think it's just, again, doing a bit of due diligence and being cautious and not being caught a bit starry-eyed. I've got this amazing opportunity to work at this club. Isn't that incredible? But hang on a minute. How do they treat their, you know, what's, what are the, how many people do they employ at the end of this? How do they treat those folks? Do they, do you get, what, you know, what do you get? So there are, there are some clubs who who have got really thought well thought out volunteering and internship programs. They support those people really really well. There's a good probability of something at the end, and there are some absolute you know cowboys out there who'll just take people for free and spit them out at the end and don't really care. So I think it's you know it would be naive to think they're all perfect. They're not. But for me, my advice would be for anyone thinking about doing that is do your due diligence, ask about people's experiences, just really go do your research before you commit to something. So I would definitely think they're worth doing for sure, but you need to tread carefully would be kind of my advice on that. It's it's hard as well when you're young and a bit naive and it's cool, cool to have a tracksuit of a football club, do you know what I mean? And it's competitive as well. I suppose that has to be considered as well do, do you know what i mean there's there's a justification on why it happens yeah oh yeah i totally get it i totally get it and as i say some sporting organizations are incredibly unscrupulous in that respect and take advantage of people because they know that there's a queue every year there's a queue at the door for, for people to do this but but you know as the consumer of that you just have to you know just just check just be careful before you commit to something and make sure you know that it, it, it it might be that there's an opportunity somewhere else that at face value doesn't look as attractive, but actually will be much better for your aspirations, your opportunities, and all the rest of it. So, yeah, just just have a bit of you know, go slowly, be cautious, do your due diligence, and think about what you're going to do. So, final segment of the podcast um, is yes. there anything that you are exploring now that's really interested you in terms of your research that could be shared through this podcast or anything that you've got going on project wise that that uh, is valuable to listeners and viewers yeah i mean it's we, we we'll talked a little bit about it today so we're definitely um looking at the kind of the reflective coach behavior piece you know, that's something that I've been working on consistently for a long time. And that's definitely evolving over time um, and really understanding how we can change coaches' practice. So use technology, use analysis to really think about making a difference to what coaches do. So what are the mechanisms really that trigger change? So that's that's a piece of work that, that, we're, that we're writing up at the moment around no, we're awash with technology. You can analyze everything. You can use video. We can increase coaches' self-awareness by them watching video. But what are really other mechanisms that you need and processes that you need to put in place to really change coaches' practices, either as a coach educator or as a coach yourself? So that's stuff we're we're looking at now, and it's um, 
that how, how do we maximize everything that's available to us to try and evolve and grow coaching and that's and that's based on working working with it with within an organization with coaches where we've had some success and some failure stuff has not worked and really understanding why that wasn't the case or it hasn't worked as well as we would have liked and it's really understanding that um and the other and the other big piece is taking that and putting it into other into other into other spaces so uh working outside of sport working with police actually looking at how they train um how they train police officers to try and accelerate their learning and change their their behavior and practice obviously there's some controversies around policing at the moment and cultural changes required so how do you do that how do you change behavior so taking some of that stuff we've learned uh, in the sporting domain and putting it into other domains about okay if you want to change on on the street on the turf behavior what what things do you need to put in place to make that happen and how do you maximize technology and analysis and all those so that they, they would i would say those are the kind of the two hot areas right now for me great stuff um final question chris and probably the the deep yes. deepest question on this podcast <laughs> Is how would you like to be remembered in the area of sports coaching? Um, I don't think that's particularly um, deep. I think that's a pretty easy somebody who made a difference. So I, you know, over the last, you know, we churn out a lot of stuff. We talk to a lot of people. We do try to do a lot of things, and it making a difference is some is how I would like to if when I eventually retire or leave or whatever it is, it's like, you know, we've done some stuff that actually has made a difference or impacted what people do. Excellent stuff. Where can listeners and viewers find you, Chris? Are you on social media? I am. I'm at Coach C1 on Twitter or X as it's called now. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. And if you hit Google, I think you get a page of me if you search me on Google as well. So yeah, I'm absolutely... There's no hiding place these days, is there? So it's pretty easy. It's pretty easy to it's pretty easy to find me if you are determined to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what we'll do is we'll put the uh, the links to your social media page in the description. So if anyone's listening or watching, Perfect. they can click the description underneath this video uh, or sound and, and listen to that. Um, from a personal point of view, I just want to thank you for your time, Chris. Obviously working within the sports coaching um, discipline. Uh, I've read a lot of your work. Uh, your work's actually very inspiring in terms of my Thank academic you. journey. Thank you. Um, and where I could potentially be in the next 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> so I just want to thank you. Um, just thank you for your time and good luck with everything at Loughborough and uh, continue doing what you're doing. Pleasure. No, great to chat. Thanks very much.